uh, of the Lord. Uh, now, I suspect that not many of you, unless you're hardcore film buffs, uh, have seen the 1998 movie Pleasantville. Pleasantville. So let me tell you uh, the story. Uh, it's, it starts, uh, well, it stars first Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon acting as a brother and sister, David and Jennifer. Uh, They're both struggling with the divorce of their parents and both trying to cope with that in different ways. Jennifer becomes a bit of a party girl uh, and David becomes a bit of a recluse. Um, David, while he is hiding away in his home, uh, begins watching this 1950s black and white TV show called Pleasantville. Uh, And in it, he finds all the sort of comforting ideas that he's looking for. He finds a simple life. He sees intact families, uh, and he sees clear community values. So he he loves the show, starts watching it all the time. Uh, Then something very weird happens, admittedly. Something very strange happens. Uh, During a tussle between brother and sister over the TV remote, they happen to press a particular combination of buttons that actually transport them into an episode of Pleasantville. And so they find themselves in this weird black and white world uh, where, uh, where everyone is really polite in this black and white world, this monochrome world where everybody does what they're told uh, and in this black and white world where nothing ever goes wrong. And so the school basketball team, no one ever misses a basket. You know, it's all a bit ridiculous. But, uh, but on the flip side, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a... There is no individuality. There's no passion. Um, there's no romance. Uh, and so while David and Jennifer are in this world, uh, Jennifer actually uh, meets a boy that she quite likes, and they go on a date. And she takes the radical bold step of reaching out and kissing him on their first date, okay? Um, And suddenly, and suddenly, their lips turn red. A little bit of color comes into the world. Uh, And as you follow the story, Jennifer's, uh, people are inspired by her chaotic, carefree way, uh, and they begin to exercise their own individuality. Other high school kids begin to do what they want to do and not what they're told. Uh, And as they do so and express their individuality uh, and break with the rigid conformity all around them, a little bit of color. They turn to color. As you can see on the screen, they turn to color. A little bit of color comes into the world. And so David, for example, is, is helping out, uh, working at a diner, and he introduces the diner owner to modern art. Uh, and this, this shopkeeper, diner owner, is so captivated that he leaves his job and becomes an artist and so turns to color. And all in all, you, you begin to see that there's a message that this movie is giving. The message the movie is giving is that breaking with those old-fashioned, rigid set of um, fundamentalist values, family values, is actually fun and life-giving and bringing color into the world. You should do that too, is really the message of the film. Well, what would Paul have to say about that? Well, Paul would want to respond, as we've looked at 
Paul's teaching about how the church should live together, but how that we as a church family should live facing the world, uh, Paul would want to say that is a lie. The message of that film is a lie. When you live for just self and stuff, that's how you live, for self and stuff, give in to all your base desires, that, that doesn't lead to color and life. Paul would want to say, no, 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 that leads to disaster, dissatisfaction and death. That is life in the dark. Ironically, if you want life in the light, life flooded with color and satisfaction and joy, you want to go a very different way. You want to live a life that pleases God. A life that pursues goodness and righteousness and truth. That is life in technicolor, is what Paul would say. That is life in technicolor. Um, the book of um, when Robbie was looking at chapter 2 uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on Sunday evenings, he gave us a very helpful reminder that the book of Ephesians is like a football match. It's a book of two halves. Uh, the first half of the book, just for if you haven't been with us, tell, retells the story of what God has been doing in the world. Uh, it retells the story of God's grace, how God, has God the Father has chosen undeserving people to be part of his family, how God the Son has sacrificed his own life so that we should be forgiven, how God the Spirit, when we put our trust in Jesus, moves in and begins to reassure us of God's love and begins to change us. That is the wonderful good news of what God has done for people like us who didn't deserve it. But part two of the book then tells our story reminds us of the part that we have to play, how we should live in response to all that God has done. And so when we come, the danger, however, when we come to this chapter is we forget the first half of the book. Uh, We begin to think that if I live this, if you just read it on its own, the danger is you think, if I live like this, God will like me and accept me. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, uh, God If you're a Christian, God already loves you and fully accepts you as part of his family. He's done everything necessary for you to be forgiven, for you to have friendship with him, and for you to have a future. He's done everything. But this then is how you should live as his forgiven, rescued people. This is the the appropriate response to the kindness of God. And so Paul is saying in, this, in these couple of verses, as we come to our conclusion this morning, Paul is saying, if you want to live the technicolor life, if you want to live uh, life in the light, here's how you do it. Two steps. Here's how you live. First, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. And second, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so if you want to live the technicolor life, a life of joy, satisfaction, and real freedom, here's how you do it. Be careful how you walk and be filled with the Spirit. First, be careful how you walk. Um, in our English, my English version here, the NIV, it says be careful then how you live. But literally what Paul says is be careful how you walk. 
Um, so as I read that, again, this dates me enormously, but I think on the first opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so you've got Indiana Jones, the famous archaeologist, the famous treasure hunter, and there's the treasure at the other side of the chamber, but as he looks down, he sees that the floor is all booby-trapped. And if you step on the wrong paving stone, the poison darts will shoot out from the wall and you will be killed. And so he's got to be careful how he walks. Okay, you get the idea? Uh, And Paul is saying similarly, as we live as Christians in this world, there's wonderful, there's real serious dangers around us, but there's also wonderful opportunities. So be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk, how you live out your life. But it's uh, it's, it's more active than that. You're to take deliberate decisions every day. Um, And that's why that walk idea and picture is very powerful and helpful. Be careful then how you walk. What does that look like in practice? Being careful how you walk. Well, two things in these verses. Be careful then how you walk. Not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. So here's the first step then. As we be careful how we walk, the first thing is to seize the day. Seizing the day. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you are, have got a bank Uh, And your bank, for some unknown reason, lodges every single morning £86,400 in your account. Exactly, £86,400 in your account. Uh, And whatever you don't spend that day, whatever is the... Sorry, you cannot carry your balance over to the next day. Uh, And whatever you do not spend in that day is cancelled and reduced to zero that night. Okay, so imagine that scenario. £86,400 in your account every day, and what you don't spend, you lose, and you can't carry it over to the next day. What would you do? What would you do? If you're anything like me, you'd withdraw every single penny of that money and spend it or invest it somewhere else that day, wouldn't you? Isn't that what you would do? Well, it turns out, you see, we have a bank like that. It's called Time. And it gives you 86,400 seconds every day. You cannot carry your balance over to the next day. And what you do not invest, what you fritter away and lose, you will never get back again. So make the most of every opportunity. Paul is saying time is short. Time is short. It's a wonderful gift from God that you have. Do not waste it. Do not waste it. That Live wisely then, Paul is saying. Um, you see, we live in a modern life where we're possibly busier than ever before. Um, that's the way it feels anyway, at least to me. Uh, we're busy with work, aren't we? We're busy with work. Um, Lots of our modern technology of laptops and, and tablets and smartphones have got wonderful benefits and we enjoy having them uh, from, for everything from Google searching to maps and all of those things. Uh, we've got wonderful advantages. But the disadvantage is, for most of us, a uh, 40-hour week is a thing of the past because we carry our work around with us all the time. can't get away from your work. 
And so we feel busy all the time. But we're not just busy with work. We're, we're busy with play. We're busy with play. We are the richest generation possibly in the history of the world. Think about that. The richest generation in the history of the world. You can come back to me if you debate that. But nevertheless, uh, we are much richer than our grandparents ever were. Which means we have more money for um, socializing, hobbies, uh, for spending time with friends, for entertainment, for travel. We can do all of those things now. And so life feels hectic, hectic, as we went from work to the gym. Uh, from the gym to picking up the kids, from picking up the kids to meeting with friends, to, to going to the cinema and concert, to organizing travel and holidays. Busy, 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 this to that to the other thing. We're busy, busy, busy people. Busier than ever before. But arguably, we waste more time than ever before, don't we? Uh, so we, sit, we can sit for hours, potentially, uh, just scrolling your Instagram feed uh, or Facebook, um, surfing on the internet, spending hours binge-watching on Netflix or Amazon Prime, and we fritter away so much of our precious time. Paul would want to say, make the most of every opportunity. You've 86,400 seconds every day. Invest them wisely. Invest them wisely. Now, again, what, what does this mean? Making the most of every opportunity. Uh, I think if I can see what's on the screen. Making the most of every opportunity probably involves thousands of tiny decisions every day, doesn't it? Lots of very tiny, basic decisions every day. Um, it involves trying to eliminate some things, delegate some things, automate some things. Uh, that's, that's part of what seizing the day involves, no doubt. But Paul uses this phrase, evil days, again in chapter 6. And I think Paul gives us two practical examples of what seizing the day, making the most of the opportunity we have uh, in two ways in chapter 6. First in chapter 6, he, he refers to us putting on the armor of God, and in particular he refers to wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is an image for the Bible, uh, and being consistent in our prayer. And you could summarize those two in really saying, making the most of the opportunity we have is setting aside time to be alone with God. Um, spending time listening to his word, the sword of the spirit, uh, spending time responding to what we hear him say uh, in prayer. Uh, and there's real wisdom. There's real wisdom. There's millions of Christians would testify to the wisdom of this, setting aside time every morning before the hectic rush of the school run, before the flood of emails and social media and work pressures all just flood in on you, there's real wisdom in setting aside time to be alone with God, to recalibrate your priorities, to strengthen you for the temptations and trials that no doubt uh, are facing you uh, in the coming day. Uh, and to be more sensitive to the opportunities that are going to be you're going to be presented with uh, in the following in the following hours, um, there's real wisdom then in setting aside time to be alone with God. 
And then Paul, as part of putting on the armor of God, he can refer to us putting on the shoes of the readiness to share the good news of the gospel. And so I think Paul is saying, here's two ways then for you to make the most of every day. Set aside time to be alone with God. And then secondly, speak up for Jesus. Speak up for Jesus. We will literally be presented with many, many, many opportunities every single day, most of us. If you leave your home, most of us will have opportunities to rub shoulders with people. Uh, and to share the truth about Jesus. Uh, If we're sensitive to natural opportunities, um, I remember Stuart last week gave us a really helpful challenge about how we should make the most of the opportunities we've got to speak. So when someone says, what did you do on Sunday? And you're tempted to wimp out and say, I spent time with friends. How about you say, I went to church And here's what I learned. Again, it's just a little, one little step. You don't have to say everything you know about the gospel in in each each go, but chip away, use the opportunities you get, and share something about what the Lord Jesus means to you, to family and friends, to work colleagues uh, and classmates, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Time is short. And so we want to make the most and tell people. Why would we not want to tell people about the pardon that they can have? Conscience cleansed. uh, The personal relationship with God that could be theirs. That they could have a guaranteed place in paradise forever. Why would you not want to tell people about that? And so we should make the most of every opportunity. Set Set aside time to be with God and speak up. For the Lord Jesus sees the day. Make the most of those 86,400 seconds that you're given. Second step of being careful how you live then is then uh, being careful how you walk is seeking God's will. Seeking God's will. Um, Paul says, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, when we hear this language or read this language about understanding or knowing God's will, I think if you're anything like me, you immediately think in personal terms that understanding God's will is about understanding I need to work out and discern what God's plan is for me personally for some of the big decisions I've got to make. You see, the truth is we make thousands of decisions every day. You've, had to made, you've, you've actually made scores of decisions already this morning. What am I going to eat for breakfast? What am I going to wear out to church? What time am I going to leave the house? Et cetera, et cetera. You've made scores of decisions already. But there's some big decisions that we all labor over, isn't, isn't there? Big decisions such as um, where am I going to live? Is Belfast going to be home for me? Or should I think Berlin or Beijing? Where, where, where should I camp out? Um, who's going to be my life partner? Should I pursue a romantic relationship um, with Sue or Jane or Joe or Jack? Uh, or should I just be content to be single? Is that, is that what God has for me? Um, where am I going to live? Who am I going to be with? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Big decisions about job. 
Um, should I pursue this career or that career? Should I change career? Have I made a foolish decision and I better suited somewhere else? Big decisions. And when we think understanding God's will, we tend to think that that's what we're called to work out here. I'm trying to discern God's wisdom. And look, the truth is, the Bible's very clear. The truth is God does have a plan for your life. He wants you to prosper. He wants to give you hope in a future. He, he will guide you. He will guide you. He's given us um, common sense, uh, the counsel of the saints, other Christians. He's given us um, his scripture, uh, compelling scripture. He's given us the, the counsel of the spirit. He's given us all sorts of tools to help us to make those decisions in life. And he wants you to make wise ones. But that is not what he's talking about here. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul asks us to understand what the will of the Lord is, he's not thinking discerning God's plans for your life personally. Paul is saying, I want you to recognize God's big plan for history. So he's not asking you to discern God's plan for you personally. He wants you to recognize God's plan, master plan, for history. And see, Paul has already used this language of God's will right back in chapter 1, if you flip back to it, uh, or it's there on the screen. Uh, in, cha- in verses chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we're told, He made known us, to us the mystery of his will, or his master plan, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's big master plan is to take this um, d- deeply divided, dysfunctional, decaying world and to bring it into peace and harmony and wholeness under the uncontested rule of the Lord Jesus as King. That's God's big plan for history. That's what God is doing. Um, Paul goes on, in him we, notice the difference in we and you here as I read, uh, in him we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Who are the we, who are the you? In that context, Paul is saying that the we are Jews, Jews like me, a Jew. Um, When we came to put our faith in Christ, all the first Christians were Jews, but the message didn't stay there. It expanded, burst out of the boundaries of Israel and flowed out to Gentiles, the you in this situation. And so God's, Paul's point is God's master plan for bringing this world to peace and harmony and wholeness under the rule of the Lord Jesus is actually being showcased in the local church. It's actually been showcased uh, in the local church Um, as different people from different nationalities and different ages, different personalities, uh, different stages, different levels of education are all wonderfully brought together as the showcase for what God will ultimately achieve for the whole world. 
That's a wonderful way to think about our church, isn't it? As we look around at people of different ages and stages, different levels of education, different personalities. At one level, we've got very little in common with some other people in this room, and yet, wonderfully, we've all that really matters in common. Because God has been doing something. This is the showcase for what God's doing in the world. Uh, if you go down into the center of Belfast, I think uh, even still, uh, I haven't been down for a few weeks, but um, if you go to the center of town and you see the, the former Premark building, uh, you'll see at the minute it's all still covered with scaffolding and there's all the plastic sheeting all up. But in behind all that, there's lots of work going on. And one day, I hope one day, all that scaffolding will come down, all the plastic sheeting will be removed, and it will reveal something sparkly and glorious underneath. Okay? As we look around at our world, we see it's all like a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess, a bit like a building site. It's just chaos and muck and mess everywhere. In fact, even as we look in the church, we see it's all a bit of a mess. We've all got broken lives. None of us are perfect. We rub each other up the wrong way. It's all a bit bit, bit broken. And yet, wonderfully, we are living in a world. We are living in a community that's a bit like that pre-mark building. God, we are work in progress, and one day the scaffolding will be removed. One day the plastic sheeting will come down, and we will be part of something glorious. We're part of something glorious. And it's a wonderful idea, isn't it? That we can be part of something amazing. Um, And so that, Paul wants you to say, when you recognize that, that your story uh, is part of God's big story, what God is doing in the world, that enables and spurs us on to live more wisely, doesn't it? Why then, if God is saying that one day, Jesus will be the uncontested king. I I know if you look at social media and start watching TV, it doesn't sound like that at the minute. Certainly that's true. But one day it will be true. And so why wouldn't you want to tell people how they can find forgiveness and the favor of the king now instead of one day bowing before him in terror later? Why would you not want to do that? Why would you not want to then impress upon your kids that the most important thing in their lives, if they're doing AQEs or whatever it is they're doing, uh, that the most important thing in their lives is not their academic, academic success, what school they go to, what degree course they do, what sporting prowess they have. The most important thing in their lives is where they stand with the Lord Jesus. And why would we not want to be a group of people who are committed to a local church family, if that's the case? If this is where all of history is going, then why would we want to be committed to a church family where we can get uh, grow in the knowledge of God, where we can get the help and support we need as we go through our trials and temptations so that we remain faithful to the King? Paul says, if you grasp the big story, you will live wisely in your story. Paul says then, be careful how you walk. Seize the day. Seize the day. Make the most of every opportunity. And then secondly, uh, we are to seek God's will. Recall his big story and allow that to reset our priorities and values. Second step then. Um, 
that Paul says, if we're being careful how we live, Paul then says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I can only apologize for that graphic. Uh, It's the best I could think of that gives you an idea of the Holy Spirit, right? Picture of a dove, okay? Be filled with the Spirit. Paul Paul uses three contrasts here in this little section. He says, uh, don't be unwise, be wise. Seize the day. Don't be foolish, understand God's will or seek God's will. Here we come to the third one. Don't be drunk. Don't be drunk, uh, but uh, be filled with the Spirit. Um, Now, look, the Bible also has other things to say about alcohol. Uh, We're not getting into that debate right now. Uh, Just to say, Psalm 104 says that lists wine as one of God's really good gifts that's given to gladden the heart. But Paul reminds us, as many of us don't need reminding, that wine and alcohol has, when it's abused and used in excess, just like any of other God's good gifts, uh, leads to disaster. Leads to disaster. Clearly, I think we're meant to read between the lines that Ephesus suffered from the same kind of binge drinking culture uh, that we know all too well in the UK today. Uh, And when you drink too much, that leads to Uh, Drinking too much leads to drunkenness, which leads to debauchery. It's not a word we use very often. It really just means reckless living, reckless living. And I think we can all understand that. How much, uh, how many times, in fact, has drunkenness led to words been spoken that have later been regretted? How many times has drunkenness led to affairs been started that have caused breakup in a whole family? How many times uh, has drunkenness led to reputations being left in tatters? How many times has drunkenness led to careers been shipwrecked? Uh, I don't think many of us need reminded of that, but it is important because what happens is drunkenness leads to a loss of self-restraint. And then um, when we are under the influence of alcohol. And I think that's the big idea in these verses, in this comparison, is that Paul says, do not be under the influence of alcohol, which leads to a loss of self-control and disaster. Instead, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which leads to self-control and life and the technicolor life. That's what Paul is saying. Um, Paul has been stressing uh, in these verses, uh, the comparison you see between alcohol and the spirit can lead to a bit of confusion, however. You can end up thinking that the spirit is a bit like a fluid, okay, and the Christian is a bit like a car, you know, so we have our tank and our petrol gauge goes down a bit and we're only three quarter full half full, quarter full and we need refilled retopped up with the spirit as if he's a liquid like petrol Uh, that's not what Paul is saying here in fact Paul has been very clear if you glance back just to chapter 4 verse uh, I think it's verse 30 uh, Paul has already said do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person he's a person Uh, who can be saddened, who can lament over the behavior of others. He's a person. And so you don't really have a part of a person. You have a whole person. 
Okay, can't have someone who's 63% pregnant. You know, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Um, in the same way, if I was to tell you, uh, when we go on holidays, we're taking my mother-in-law with us. Um, I love my mother-in-law, by the way, just to be clear. Um, but uh, we're taking my mother. You would not ask the question, and what part of your mother-in-law are you taking? You know, that would be a stupid question. She's, if she comes with us, we get all of her. We get all of her. In the same way, when someone becomes a Christian, we get the Holy Spirit. He, as a person, comes to dwell within us. We get all of him. We get all of him. You can't have a top-up of a person. And so, uh, in fact, I think the translation here is a little unhelpful um, in this verse, uh, in verse 18. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, I, I would argue a far better translation is be filled by the Spirit. It's a subtle, but it's actually a really important uh, distinction. Uh, again, to use a holiday analogy, so last summer we went up to the North Coast um, and our car boot was filled with luggage. It was filled with luggage. It was filled by me, okay? I quite enjoy that 3D Tetris puzzle of putting all the stuff into the boot, okay? It wasn't, the boot of our car was not filled with me. I wasn't somehow kind of sitting in the boot. I was the active agent doing the filling, not the content of the boot. You see the difference? You see the difference? And so when Paul is saying, be filled by the Spirit, the Spirit is the active agent who wants to fill you. He wants to fill you. Uh, and I would argue from the wider reading of Ephesians, he wants to fill your heart with love for God and for others. He wants to fill your mouth with true and helpful words to speak to God and words of praise or to, to others and words of praise to God. He wants to fill your hands with, with good deeds. He wants to fill your dreams with noble ambitions. He wants to fill you, fill you in all those ways. And so the big idea, I think, in these verses is coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when we come under the influence of alcohol, it leads to a lack of self-control and disaster. But in the rest of these verses, Paul is saying, when you come under the Spirit of God, however, this is where it leads. This is where it leads. It leads to speaking to one another. It leads to worshiping. It leads to giving thanks and submitting to one another. You see with the wee arrows I put on there, the, the, the first and the last one are kind of the horizontal as we relate well to other people. Uh, and the middle two are how we relate better and well to God, prompted, motivated by the Holy Spirit. It is an important idea there because often think we think really, really hope, holy people. They're the ones with kind of a ready break glue and kind of go off and live on the top of a mountain somewhere. Paul is saying, no, no, no. If you are someone truly filled with the Holy Spirit, that will, he will actually propel you to relate better to other people. First one then is speaking to one another. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, from the Spirit. Now, do not worry. Do not worry. Uh, when I read that first, I think, oh no, oh no. Is the Holy Spirit going to call us to live in some sort of musical, you know, where we kind of 
just while we're speaking, one of us will just randomly burst into song, sing to one another. Oh, that's, that's horrific. I, I'm, not a big, I'm not a musical fan at all. I think that would be awful. No, no, that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is giving you one good example of speaking to one another uh, in a way that encourages. Because what does, when we sing good Christian songs, psalms and spiritual songs, we are, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of God's love. We're reminded of God's control. We are reminded of God's wisdom and his goodness. And so we remind each other of those things when we sing, so we should do it when we speak as well. And so when you're speaking to a fellow Christian and you discover that they are they're filled with doubt, when you discover that they are distressed in some way, when you discover that they're discouraged or they're disillusioned with the whole thing, what are you to do? You're to speak to them, to remind them of God's love, to remind them of God's control, to remind them of God's wisdom and his goodness. Speak to one another. As Paul put it earlier, speak truth in love. Speak Bible gospel truth to one another. Second, we are to be worshipping. The spirit-filled person is the one who sings and makes music in their heart to the Lord. It doesn't always have to be in tune. It's nice. There's no requirement uh, for singing in tune, but Paul is saying that the grateful, or the, the, the Christian spirit-filled person is the grateful person. Grateful. And we can see that that is supernatural when they are able to thank God when times are tough. And I've had the real privilege, as I've had the chance to walk with many of you through tough times, through illness and disappointment, and, and I have heard you thank God even in the midst of those difficult days. And that is supernatural. That is supernatural that you're able to do that. Evidence that God is working among us. Um, third thing, uh, giving thanks. Or sorry, um, fourth thing, uh, submitting uh, to one another. Giving thanks and worshiping go together uh, as we worship God and sing his praise and then thank him for what he has done, for who he is and what he's done. And then fourthly, we submit to one another. We submit to one another. The spirit-filled person will be the one who flexes for the good of other people. Isn't always insisting on their own rights and their own preferences, but willing to flex in order to serve and love those around them. Um, and so we notice, just as I read that, that this is a command to be filled with the spirit, to open yourself up to his influence. It's a command. We're to do that every day as we listen carefully to the voice of the Spirit, as we read his word, uh, as we ask him every day to, uh, to change us, to prompt us, to guide us. Um, I often ask the Spirit to, get, to guide me every day and not to be subtle about it because I'm pretty slow. Uh, and I, I commend that prayer to you. Um, we are called to be people who open ourselves up to the influence of the Holy Spirit in every area of our lives. Sometimes our, our, our lives are a bit like a house where we say, well, we quite like you in the kitchen, Holy Spirit, and in the living room, but you see that, that room over there, I, I keep the key for that and I keep that locked. No, we are to open up all of the rooms of our lives to the Holy Spirit uh, under his scrutiny, uh, asking him to guide us in every area, our career, our relationships, our family life, 
not just our Bible reading time and time at the the gathered church. God wants for you and for me to live a technicolor life, life in the light, life of freedom and joy. That's what he wants. And here's how we do it. Uh, We be careful how we live by seizing the day, making the most of every opportunity, seeking God's will, recognizing his big plan for history and where we can play a small part in it, and being opening ourselves up to be filled by the Spirit. And when we do that, unlike the world, the world says just live for yourself, gather as much stuff as you can, and you'll be happy and fulfilled. Paul says nonsense, absolute nonsense. Follow his wisdom, and you will enjoy life in the light, the technicolor life. Let me pray for us.